You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, just to clarify, next, uh, next Sunday, Christmas Eve, the morning and the evening are different experiences. It's not the same service, pick one and come to one. We want you to be at both. It, 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 in, it encapsulates the whole Advent journey together. So uh, my encouragement is to be, to be there at both. So this morning, uh, the Advent theme is joy. And if you know me, you know that I was an obvious choice to preach about joy. I was, in high school, voted most likely to be a ray of sunshine. I've preached uh, several times during Advent, and during Advent I talk about how I'm sort of a curmudgeon. Um, and that is true. But I decided this week that curmudgeons preaching about joy is about as Advent as it gets, so let's see what happens. Um, there's three things that I'd like for us to do today, uh, thinking about this passage. So I want, to, I want to try to situate Isaiah 9 in its original space, uh, walk through it with those sort of ancient uh, eyes in mind, if, 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 as best we can anyway. And I want to jump and think about how Jesus enlivens the text, both in the time of the Gospel writers and for us now, and then invite us into this text ourselves. What might it mean for us as Christians today? Uh, so beginning uh, here, thinking about this in uh, Israel's context, uh, I, I was thinking about just standing up here and performing the Messiah for everyone, but um, I, I don't know it, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't work out for me. So we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'll just talk for a little bit. Isaiah says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Okay. So we'll stop there for a minute and try to think about this in the context. So uh, the ancient Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. And Judah is the uh, land that's being spoken of here in this passage. So it's the southern kingdom, and it's the one that tends to, in the Old Testament, get the attention of God more often because Judah experienced kind of a double share of pain and oppression and suffering. Judah was like the little brother in some ways that got picked on often. And so when you are reading this and you, you read this, you're, you're, we're picturing the, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the reason uh, for the gloom and the distress, the humbling and the darkness, the, Isaiah calls Judah the land of deep darkness. Now that's not really a technical term, but it is a specific one. And what I mean is, it's not a general sense of individual people experiencing darkness in their lives, but it's a category of people. Judah, the kingdom of Judah, is a land of deep darkness. So if you've seen Lord of the Rings, uh, or read the books, 
Sorry for people that really like the books. I'm just thinking about the movie. I think a good comparison here would be the kingdom of Rohan. Uh, this once proud people living under the increasing darkness of the oppressive forces of evil. So you have this land and the dark of the enemy is present. It's looming. It's kind of hovering over Rohan. It's a threat. But at the same time, it's actively inflicting pain and violence. And if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, then that was not helpful. So if Judah is Rohan, then, the, then Mordor is Assyria. So Assyria was this big kingdom on the outside, this monstrously huge and powerful nation just on the outskirts of Judah's borders. And Assyria has all the power and all the resources and all the evil intent to inflict great suffering on the vastly inferior people of Judah. Assyria is the context for when you read about the exile, uh, a lot of times this is where the people in Judah were carried into exile. Assyria are their captors, their tormentors, their abusers, and their overlords. That's the context. And to make it worse, Judah had kind of a puppet king, the king Ahaz, who was a real kind of bad dude himself. Uh, The enemy is inside the walls. So uh, like Grima Wormtongue and Lord Denethor wrapped into one. And that also was a Lord of the Rings reference for those who haven't. So you've got this puppet king sort of doing the bidding of the overlords to the east. This is the darkness the people of Judah are living in. The land itself is a land of deep darkness, this huge canyon of suffering from which there is seemingly no escape. And so it's in the context of that darkness, which is a metaphor for this very real reality of living under the thumb of oppression and suffering, that Isaiah reveals God's promise. Into the darkness, light. And in place of despair, joy. Not vague happiness, because Isaiah gives this experience of joy two really specific metaphors. He says that there's, instead of despair, going to be joy, the kind of joy that people experience at the harvest, which is a specific kind of joy. Because raising crops that you need to survive, subsistence farming, which these are folks that would have been subsistence farmers, brings with it a consistent low-grade fear and anxiety all the year long. There are many what-ifs to being a subsistence farmer. And that's why there were so many feasts and festivals baked into the harvest in Israel's ancient way of life together. Because all that toasting and feasting is in response to the fact that the fear and the anxiety of losing a crop to plague or pestilence or drought are gone. All that fear that they've been holding on to for months is gone. That's why they celebrate when they bring the harvest in. So in place of that fear of possible starvation and ruin comes the joy of God's abundance. That feeling, Isaiah says, is the joy that God will bring to the people. The joy of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That the people will not waste away, but Yahweh, the provider, will satisfy their needs, will fill their hungers, and will quench their cravings. The kind of anxiety and longing for security is a need that God intends to shine His light into. 
And so in Isaiah, we, we, we find out that it is the abundance of God. God's abundance is light in the darkness. Isaiah gives a second metaphor here. That there's another kind of joy, and it is joy the way people experience joy at the end of battle. I want to kind of locate that experience, though. So uh, if you've ever watched a war movie, oftentimes at the end of a, of, of a battle, it'll show the victors uh, sort of show off that triumphalistic scream, right? They raise their sword in the sky, and they all scream this sort of blood-curdling, I'm not going to do it because that would be embarrassing to me. That's sort of the image that I have, and I do think that idea is at play in this text. Uh, but I think that sometimes when you watch a film like that, those moments sort of downplay the dread of war itself. Because it's, it's not like farming with a consistent low-grade fear and anxiety. The dread of battle is this spiked, high-grade, front-burner fear of impending death and violence. Kill-or-be-killed trauma that, as we well know, can infect the soldier with wounds that remain unseen and unhealed for years or even a lifetime. So to stand at the end of a battle, having survived it, is a joy that combines relief from the immediate and overwhelming threat of violence and pain with the, even if it's momentarily, hope that the violence is done. Rightly seen, that scream at the end of a battle is as much a way of proclaiming thankfulness for salvation as it is any sort of bloodlust. Like, we made it. So the darkness of the fear and anxiety, the fear of violence and oppression, Isaiah is saying all of that that you're feeling is about to be undone by God. But how? We want to read on here. Verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says, So it's like in the day of Midian's defeat. You, meaning God, has shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, where every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So Isaiah continues the warrior theme for a few more verses. Uh, continues that metaphor by talking about this battle at Midian. And if you were good at Bible quiz, you might remember that the Midian battle is the story of Gideon. The thing to take away from the story of Gideon, if you don't know this story, is that uh, the point of the story was that it is, a, it is a military victory that only God could accomplish. God whittles down Gideon's army to such a small number that everyone thought they were for sure going to be crushed by Midian, and yet God delivered a great victory for the exact purpose of saying it was not Gideon who accomplished that victory, but it was the Lord. It was a give God all the credit type of moment. And Isaiah is saying, look, Assyria stands at your borders. Defeating Assyria is going to be like that. That is impossible in human terms, Judah. You cannot beat them. But that's what God is doing. God is going to liberate you from the oppression. And in that sense, the same way that God's abundance is light in the darkness, Isaiah is saying that God's liberation from oppression is light in the darkness. 
And what's more, that liberation comes with the promise of peace. We can throw that back up there just for a second. This idea that um, the image there are boots from battle and garments that are soaked in the battle's blood, they're being burned. That's a picture, yes, of the celebration of victory, but also a sense to the finality of the bloodshed and violence. It is finished. It is finished. So it is God's abundance that is light in the darkness. It is God's liberation that is light in the darkness. And it is God's peace that is light in the darkness. How does God intend to bring this about? How is it that God will bring His abundance and liberation and peace to a people who have known only darkness? Well, we get to read on. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on His shoulders. And He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, for the sake of time, I want to try to be somewhat brief here. But Isaiah is giving the people a promise. But it is not just a, hey, in a few hundred years, there will be a baby born named Jesus kind of promise. It's not just a, hey, several generations from now, we will solve the problem type of moment. This passage is given to the people in a particular moment, in a particular situation, and Isaiah is really promising God's redemption of Judah, the people that are hearing it, in their particular experience of oppression, pain, and suffering. And because of air handle, this is like the most famous Advent passage there is, right? Like, we all immediately think Jesus. But when the people of Judah heard this, they wouldn't have thought Jesus. They would have no context to think Jesus. They would have been looking for something else. What was this passage doing before Jesus was born? Well, some scholars will note that, for example, as bad as Ahaz was, and as much as he like made deals with the enemy, his son Hezekiah was equally as good. His son, Hezekiah, like restored the people's fortunes in a way that actually lines up really well with this. So in that sense, God's promise through Isaiah to the people was realized in Hezekiah, but not fully. It was this like low-level making good on the promise of restoration and redemption. And I point that out to point out the fact that that is how God works. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring in small ways, even as we wait for the ways that God will redeem and restore in big ways. That is what God does. That there is always in God an immediacy to the redemptive and the restorative promises that we hear, even if they go unfulfilled in the biggest sense of the word. So just because... Hezekiah was that sort of low-level fulfillment doesn't mean that this text isn't ultimately all about Jesus. So I want you to I want to think about that together, and I want to look at this text from Matthew chapter four. I actually think you're going to hear this text from Matthew chapter four because it's not up there. So this is uh, this is from Matthew 
It says this, When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. We heard those names already, didn't we? To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, that in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What makes Isaiah 9 such a wonderful Advent passage, a passage about Jesus, is less that Isaiah meant it that way and more that Jesus meant it that way. Jesus, in his life and ministry, sees himself, and Matthew sees it this way because he wrote it down, that Jesus was the writ large fulfillment of that promise that Isaiah promised to the people and that they experienced in this really small way hundreds of years before. Jesus can look back and say, yeah, but I'm really what you were waiting for. I'm really what you were waiting for. What we saw in Isaiah as this very particular experience of living in darkness between this country Judah and this country Assyria, the context of oppression and injustice and violence and suffering is now extended in Jesus to the full range of ways that the darkness of evil lurks and lies in wait. The world that Jesus came to then, in that sense, is the same world that we inhabit today, right? Full of injustice, full of oppression, full of suffering, full of pain. The text in Matthew even tells us that it was in the context of the moment that John the Baptist was imprisoned. John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod, who was a puppet king doing the unjust bidding of a foreign power. This time it was Rome. So it was exactly the same context that Jesus comes and lives into the role of the promised king who will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness that will replace the oppressive and unjust experience of the weak and vulnerable Israel with a new experience. A new experience marked by, guess what? Abundance. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. It would be marked by liberation. The New Testament tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it will be marked by peace because we are a community where the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. So in Advent, we remember that into the human experience of darkness, we hear again the ancient promises of God's abundance and liberation, and peace. And those promises are not just meant for one particular people at one particular time, but they are amplified into every ear living in every dark crag and crevice. Advent reminds us of the promise that there is no darkness that can stand up to the full and flooding light of Christ. Isaiah ends with this promise. We'll put up that last slide. He ends this promise with this line, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I like that word zeal. We don't use it very often. Walter Brueggemann calls it the passionate and emotionally driven commitment of God. 
to end the darkness with His light. The passionate and emotionally driven commitment of God to drive out all the forces of evil and render their plans to enact suffering and pain impotent and futile. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Meaning, this is God's discerned position on every form of oppression. God's discerned position on every form of sadness. God's discerned position on every form of pain and suffering is that I am going to deal with that once and for all. That means literal oppression and literal injustice. Like the, the many ways in which humanity can enact evil upon the weak and the vulnerable. God is establishing in its place justice and righteousness. This is happening. And it will happen. At the cosmic level, this is what Jesus establishes and upholds a new kind of kingdom marked by a new kind of ethos. But, in the same way that God worked out a closer-to-the-ground act of justice on behalf of Judah, God is working out justice and righteousness in the world now. He's doing that as a sign and a signal to all the world that the powers cannot contend with the wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There is no limit, the text tells us, to the justice and righteousness that that King has, is, and will bring to the world. The darkness cannot stand in that kingdom's light. So that gets us to the third layer. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this? So I want to suggest to us that in the first place, we are invited to hear this passage in its cosmic power. That Jesus is the King in whose presence evil and injustice, oppression and suffering are destroyed. Jesus ushers in this unfolding, creation-wide experience of freedom and peace that offers His people the experience of joy instead of dejection. Gladness instead of gloom and elation where once all seemed to pain. The Scriptures from cover to cover give us a picture of a God who cares so deeply and is so incensed by human suffering that He would go to the lengths of taking on human form and flesh to reside among the deepest experiences of pain felt by those dealt blow after blow after blow of the worst the world can offer. And so for us, we remember, because the great promises of Advent remind us, that the light of Christ is available to everyone. The light of Christ is available to everyone, and in particular, the light of Christ is available to those who don't live under the bright lights of the world's movers and shakers. The light of Christ is available to those who get pushed to the dark corners of society. Even there, the light of Christ burns bright enough to bring joy. So I think Advent invites us to be a people who believe that and who live in light of that light. And then secondly, I think that Advent reminds us that what God is doing in all the cosmos, He's also doing cardiologically. Like what hap what's happening in the heavens is also happening in our hearts. In your heart, in my heart, in everyone's heart. That God would extend His light into the 
furthest corners of the realm of darkness means that you and I bathe in the light of Christ every day. We bathe in the light of Christ every day, no matter our life situation and no matter where we go. We do not have to hoard or hide the light of Christ for ourselves, afraid that there is not enough to go around. Because Isaiah reminds us that all of our hungers are filled. Every hunger we have and everyone who hungers is satisfied. Jesus is the abundant joy of every longing heart. Sisters and brothers, it is true that darkness is everywhere. But it is also true that it is everywhere being driven out by the light of Jesus. So you do not have to be afraid. I think the the deeper and, and maybe more challenging invitation this morning is to hold out your darkness to Jesus. To let him shine his light into every crag and crevice of your life. To let him liberate to share in his abundance, and to experience his wholeness. In a room like this, undoubtedly there are folks who experience the land of deep darkness. Not a general sense of darkness, not the darkness that is common to everyone, but the kind that is circumstantial. There are some of us who experience life like Judah did. We experience life at the mercy of unkind and unjust others. Life in the world can be a burden, and when that life is also under threat from other people or from social factors which complicate and which exact cruel treatment, living in the land of deep darkness takes on new meaning. So if that is you, just like in the days of Midian defeat, it seems impossible that God could deliver a victory there. But God did with Gideon, and God did with Hezekiah, and God does with Jesus. God is carving out a new kingdom where evil has no place, and everyone is welcome to full citizenship, no matter your circumstance, no matter your position. The promise of Advent is that that kingdom exists and one day will be all there is. So if you live every day in deep darkness, relief and joy is coming. And for all of us, uh, friends, we are people of the king. And people of a king who cares about the suffering of those under the thumb of the powers. So ought we to care. So ought we to live our way of life together and alongside the hurting and the broken, the oppressed and broken down, Because when we do, it is a testament to the promise. And it is a sign of our faith in the one who is coming to make all things new. Coming to take away all mourning, death, crying, and pain. To refer to the text that Andrew preached, Advent, week one. The one who bears up in himself the wounds of the world's evil brings restoration and redemption. That one frees us from every comprehensible way that sin destroys our capacity to experience the abundance and freedom of God. Frees us so that we can experience the peace and the wholeness that God is stitching back together in Christ. The darkness is all around. 
And so we hold up our darkness so that the light of Christ can drive it all away. Let's pray together. greatness of his government and peace there will be no end God if we spent too much time thinking about it it would be easy to despair the ways in which the world is broken and the ways in which either we or people we know and love experience the the backside of the world that live in the shadow of darkness Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.